Hello and welcome to the Hindus In Focus podcast with a continuing close look at the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. I'm Narayan Lakshman, associate editor at the Hindu and your host for today. I'm very pleased to introduce my guest for the podcast, uh, Dr. Fahim Yunus, chief quality officer and chief of infectious diseases at the University of Maryland in the US. Uh, he specializes in infectious diseases, um, and he has been outspoken on social media during the course of this pandemic, especially to put to rest numerous myths about the ongoing uh, virus uh, infections and various solutions that have been proposed across the world. Uh, and I'm very much hoping that Dr. Yunus will also be able to talk to us today a little bit about what's been happening in the U.S. itself. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Thank you very much for having me, Mr. Lakshman. Uh, so to begin with, uh, please tell us a little bit from a U.S. perspective even about some of these myths that you've been talking about uh, regarding the pandemic. Uh, firstly, why do you f- did you feel that it was necessary to put out those very useful clarifications that you did uh, write about? I was getting so many calls, text messages from people at my work, in my community, in my family, who were concerned and they were hearing all kinds of different information, sometimes on social media, sometimes even on television, because realize this is a novel virus. We are still learning about it, even in the infectious disease community. And they say misinformation loves a vacuum. And since there was a vacuum, a lot of misinformation was being filled in. And I literally could not respond to all those texts because I was so busy at my work in the hospital with patient care and planning for coronavirus. Then one day, finally, my daughter, who goes to college, and she just laughingly just suggested that maybe you should tweet about it, and that way you can answer all these questions, and that's how it started. Okay. And why do you feel that you know, there was this lack of information from the government side, maybe, because that is, again, something that we seem to have seen in other countries, uh, even including India. While there has been some basic information, uh, there's been a, enough of a lack to make people confused or start putting out their own theories on what's happening. Yeah, it's a great question. I think the fundamental thing that we all need as a global community is trust the science. And when science says or a scientist says, I don't know, that's a very unsettling answer for people, particularly in the middle of a pandemic. When people, nobody, nobody's worried about why we cannot cure hypertension. Of course, you all have to take medications all your life for blood pressure. We cannot cure it. But people don't get panicked by that. In a situation that's new, that is just changing by the day, People need answers, and I think it's very important for us to remain honest, authentic, and instead of falling for the temptation to make up an answer, simply tell them, look, we don't know. And that vacuum of information just, I think people are well-intentioned, so they start throwing treatments out there that have never been tested, that are just made-up stuff. So it's, it's just very complex. Um, And it's really interesting what you said about, you know, sometimes governments actually not knowing and then having the courage to admit to that in a sense. But do you think that, you know, maybe that has been politically a difficult thing to do, especially in cases where like, you know, beginning with China, but then also in Italy and Spain and France and now the U.S., you know, the infections have become sort of a runaway case and there is a sense of losing control over the spread 
uh, which shows up governments in, in a less than sort of capable light in terms of handling the pandemic. Yeah, see, I'm not a politician. I don't know what their challenges are. I can tell you I've been seeing patients for over 20 years. It's very common in my work where patients will ask me futuristic questions. Dr. Yunus, when will I go home? Will this thing happen again? And I always tell them, I said, look, Disney's motto is to make you happy. And I'm not Disney. (laughs) My motto is to make you healthy. And I will just simply tell you the truth. And whether you like it or not, today, I know that you will like it down the road. You will remember that that doctor was honest and authentic with you. I think that's always the hard thing to tell someone something that they don't want to hear. But whenever you are in a position of authority, at least when I'm with my patients, I believe that they have they have enlisted my services to give them the best care. I feel it's incumbent upon me to give them the truth in a respectable, compassionate fashion. And most people respond really well to that, actually. You know, I think there is this fear that if we tell them the truth, perhaps people will be panicking. But everybody is busy. People have to plan their lives. And if something's going to take three months, I'm not going to tell you that it'll get better within a week, because I think after a week, I'll lose your trust. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, speaking of these gaps in knowledge uh, and the need to fill them in a responsible way, uh, could you talk to us a little bit about each of those things that you clarified online on social media? Let's start with weather, because that's something that has really done the rounds a lot in India. And I think people have latched onto it as a sense of uh, you know, it being an anchor of hope, uh, you know, that we are about to enter our summer months and the the Indian summer, as you know, is, can be scorching. So maybe that'll be the end of transmission rates and it'll bring things back to normal. Uh, how realistic is it to have or harbor such hopes? Well, hope is a good thing, but hope is a bad strategy. We need a strategy against this virus. If it goes away, if I'm proven wrong, boy, I will be so happy, I can't tell you. But the fact of the matter is, we learn a lot about future from our past. As infectious disease physicians, we've lived through SARS and MERS and H1N1 and so many other outbreaks. And if you look at MERS, actually it's Middle Eastern respiratory infection happened in very hot climate in very hot countries. So previous outbreaks typically have not respected weather patterns because these are novel agents. We do not have immunity against them. Will there be some seasonality to it? We don't know. We will find out. But once again, I don't think that when you're dealing with millions of people that we can plan based on hope. I don't think that it's a good strategy to start digging a well when you're thirsty. You will not be able to make planning in the middle of June if this does not abate. So it's it's a good strategy to start working now, assuming that nothing's going to change due to seasonality. And there is no data, no scientific reason for us to believe that that's going to happen. I suppose in this case, uh, people are, I mean, you're absolutely right about previous infections. But in this case, people may be looking at the coronavirus itself. And I don't know how much the data exactly supports it. But there is a feeling that, you know, it has done far more damage in the temperate region countries of the world and for example in countries like Taiwan, Singapore and Hong Kong it seems to have come under control much more but then again that begs the more important question of separating seasonality effects from uh, effective public health policies doesn't it? Sure you look you know that's a great point you just made now look at what Singapore did or Taiwan did they didn't pin their strategy on hope 
when it started, Singapore's president came out right away and he said, we are going to take care of it because we still remember our lessons from SARS in 2003. I saw a patient actually here in America who traveled to Singapore and he told me he was there in February and he said they established 900 clinics where anyone could go immediately, get tested, get quarantined, get social support. So when you put that sort of a system in place, and remember Singapore is 5.5 million people and similarly most of these countries in comparison to India are very small populations, they were able to mobilize a social medical structure to take care of it. It was not the weather, it was their strategy. Okay, okay, that's that's a really important point. So the second uh, sort of myth that you talked about was spreading through mosquitoes. Um, I, I don't I think it's fairly clear that that doesn't happen at this point. I think it does not spread through mosquitoes, and it's an important point to make, particularly in countries like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, where they see so much dengue or malaria. This is a respiratory pathogen. It typically has to get through our nasopharyngeal passages and it attaches to receptors in our respiratory tract. So there is no evidence that it's a blood-borne infection where a mosquito can take this virus and insert it in our blood. Coronaviruses in the past have never followed that sort of trajectory. That's not the right vector for it. So I'm pretty comfortable saying that mosquitoes are not going to worsen this outbreak. Okay. Has there been any actual testing of uh, that scenario in the sense, you know, you you find, you, you do use blood as the vector and you see whether it can propagate from one person to another? I mean, in a laboratory setting, has there been some way to check that or it's just based on the fact that you haven't had active patient cases uh, in, in this regard? Not to my knowledge, but I would say that it's probably not something that most people would study because the evidence is just so blatant that there are certain viruses which go through fecal-oral. We know that there are certain viruses that are blood-borne. Simple question would be when blood is tested from these patients, like in India, I know you have about a 1,000 patients now, and it's gonna, number's going to increase wherever we are. We know that. In U.S., we have over 100,000 cases. Now, I'll tell you, when these patients come to the hospital, we collect their blood and their blood goes to our labs. If blood was a massive risk, we will be labeling that blood. We will be handling it very differently, but we are not. There are no recommendations to do that. Got it. Okay. And uh, the next one you talked about was whether blood banks themselves are testing for COVID. I think you've just answered that that is not the case. It's quite unlikely that they'd be involved in that. They do not, yeah. Blood, because initially and even now, some people cannot get tested. There is a backlog. There is a capacity mismatch. So there was a myth going around that let's just donate blood. And since blood banks test us for hepatitis and HIV, they will probably test for COVID as well. But I wanted to reassure people that that's not the case. We should not be donating blood thinking it'll get tested that way. Okay, and actually at that point, if I can just segue into a related question, um, this this point about there not being enough testing, so specifically regarding India. So we have, relative to the size of our population and the density, relatively lower numbers um, as opposed to many other countries, including the U.S. and Italy and Spain and the most uh, highly proliferated uh, cases. So do you think that this is more, in India's case, this could be more because of testing? Or do you feel that, you know, India did act very aggressively in terms of uh, closing down its border, international borders early, 
Uh, and now it's implemented a 21-day lockdown of the entire 1.3 billion population. Do you think it's more that those policies could be working and and that is a sort of a realistic uh, rate of infection that we're seeing on the ground? Well, controlling traffic and creating social distancing will always work. We know that. But what we will never know without testing is what's the real burden of the disease. Now realize 80% of the people will have mild disease, will get better on their own. About 15% of the people may remain completely asymptomatic. It's your peak, the tip of the iceberg that you're going to identify in the hospitals. In our societies, there are so many other cultural nuances playing at the same time. There are economic factors, there are cultural factors. So I think it's premature to assume that we have low cases. I would like to see data because I think that would be very reassuring because most people, you know, data is like light. You want to turn the light on in the room and actually see what's happening. Sometimes people don't want to turn the light on because, you know, they're afraid of what they might find. But I think based on the aggressive intervention that India has already put in place, it'll be extremely important to turn on the light, do some mass testing in high-risk populations, really figure out what's the caseload, because I believe it's pretty premature to believe that the numbers are very low. Okay, and this you say, despite the fact that uh, I think we started seeing our first few cases around the end of January, early February, they started picking up, and now we're well into, you know, two months into it, and one thing that, you know, leaving aside questions of not having the right data, what we're not seeing is a massive hike in the number of, uh, you know, fatalities or hospitals being overwhelmed, the nightmare scenario, which you have seen in some other countries. Um, We're not seeing that yet. I mean, and we can state that with some certainty because we do have an active media and press and that would get reported. So do you think that it's that two months into this, is it still possible that we have vast underlying infection rates? That's a very good question. And as I said, I honestly hope that you're right, because this will be a brilliant story for the world of early containment, because so far we have all, most countries have failed at early containment. We have gone to the mitigation stage. I think that will be a brilliant story. But once again, knowing that a virus that has an RO number, that reproductive number, where if I have that virus, I'm likely to give it to two or three more people, by the time you repeat that cycle 10 times, you've given it to over 30,000 people. So in a country highly dense like India, as I said, it's, it's difficult for us epidemiologists, infectious disease doctors to believe that, but that's not to say it's not possible. This is where the humbling part of it, I was just saying a few minutes ago, the best answer sometimes is I don't know. And this is one of those situations where, boy, I would love if that's the truth and if it's not happening, because that'll be a brilliant story and the world will learn something about it uh, once we dissect the whole issue. So honestly, I don't know whether it's true or not. Okay, that's great. So and moving on uh, to the next sort of myth that you were talking about online, uh, that drinking water could wash the virus down your throat and your stomach acids would deal with it. Is that at all a truth? Yeah, of course, it's not true. And those are the kind of myths I believe they come from a good place. People are well-intentioned. But that's classical example of how misinformation loves a vacuum. The virus actually is not just sitting in our throat. 
it attaches to our cells, it penetrates the cell, and then it sort of incorporates itself into our genetic material. So this is not something that you can simply wash away. It's deeply screwed in to our cells, and our immune system has to fight it. We cannot just wash it away from the surface. Okay, good. Good that that's clear now. Um, and then uh, the other, the next point you talked about was fatality numbers were not as high in this case uh, uh, relative to other, you know, fairly deadly viruses like the flu, which, however, we seem to have accepted as a reality in our modern societies. Yeah. So people initially thought that what's the big deal with this? There's flu kills so many thousands of people, but the difference is this is a novel virus. Our immune systems have never seen it, so we don't have any antibodies against it. For flu, we do have antibodies in our system. This virus is much more efficient. We give it to two or three people. Influenza, we give it to one or two people. And the third most important thing is this virus has a mortality that is 10 to 15 times higher than influenza. So if we were to just allow it to run its course, we will have millions of deaths around the world. And not just that, that our health systems will be overloaded with patients in the hospitals that we would not be able to handle. So it will have a massive social and economic ripple effect. Okay. Um, and then uh, you did also address the question of hand sanitizers versus soaps. Uh, which one is better? Uh, what is the content that within them that helps? Yeah, people want to buy the most expensive hand sanitizer. That's not the right strategy. Soap and water is better than hand sanitizer, scientifically proven. And secondarily, antibacterial soaps are no better than regular soaps. Remember, this is not a bacteria, it's a virus. So I'll always tell people, that just going to the most fancy thing isn't usually the best thing. In this particular case, it's the dull, old, boring strategies like hand-washing, social distancing, covering your cough and sneeze. Those are the things that are of the best value and not the fancy stuff. Okay. And uh, what is it within hand sanitizers and soaps that really makes a difference? Is it uh, the chemical reaction that, of the specific chemicals that are in there? or How does it kill the virus exactly or wash it off? You know, again, as much as we want to believe that it's a great virus, actually it's a pretty lousy, pretty wimpy virus because it can disintegrate very easily with the detergent effect of the soap. It's just very efficient because of droplets, it gets into our respiratory system and once it's incorporated into our cell, then it sort of takes over our machinery. So as long as it's on a surface, it's very easy to disintegrate the virus with aggressive hand washing like we've talked about, where it's not just the quantity of hand washing. Most people want to just wash their hands every five minutes. I wouldn't want people to worry about it too much. I think it's the quality of hand washing that you wash it for 20 seconds, that you wash between your finger webs, under your nails, around your thumb, on the other side of the hand. And if it takes 20 seconds, then before and after you touch public surfaces, that will be a good strategy. Okay. And lastly, you did talk about uh, lots of conspiracy theories or, uh, you know, insinuation that it's been, the virus was uh, synthetically or manufactured uh, and probably in China. What is your take on that? Yeah, I think if people forget everything, one word how we are going to win this war against the virus is trust. We have to trust our experts. 
Like I would have said it up front, if people cannot trust me, honestly, they should not listen to this podcast. They're wasting 20 minutes of their time because I'm not here to argue my point with anyone. I'm just here to tell people what the science says. So that's the larger point. As come when it and you know the conspiracy theories again stem out of lack of trust, Mr. Lakshman. And I think there's a paper in Nature where they have gone into great detail about the genetic makeup of this virus. And these are top-level scientists from all over the world who publicly taken a position that there is no way you can manufacture this virus in a lab. Just by looking at the genetic makeup, we can see if it's a random mutation or it's man-made. Now, whether it jumped from seafood or whether it jumped into humans from reptiles or bats, we will give you a final answer hopefully in a year or so. But when we go down the conspiracy theories, we remove our focus from the problem at hand, which which requires us to have trust and be united in our response. Look how united this virus is against us. It's the same in India or China or America. We need to think globally on the level of humanity. And that's why also one, one reason I wanted to come on this program, because to me, all human beings are respectful. All of us are important. And we have to think from a human standpoint rather than divide ourselves in nations and politics and other, you know, man-made structures. Okay, Dr. Yunus, thank you. On that hopeful note, we'll uh, sign off. Um, My pleasure today again to have Dr. Fahim Yunus, uh, Chief Quality Officer and Chief of Infectious Diseases at the University of Maryland. Thank you so much for joining us today.